0: And if you've got a Bible with you, uh, reach for that. If it's on your phone, if it's uh, a church Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, please throw up your hand and someone will come and get a Bible to you. The reason we have a Bible in front of us is so that we can check what Phil is saying is right by what's in the Bible. It's important. Um, but we're kind of in Luke, so if you want to flick to Luke, chapter 22. Uh, It's page 1057, if you've got one of these Red Church Bibles. So Luke chapter 22, the reference is on the screen as well, verses 1 to 13. Let's read that together now. Now the festival of unleavened breads, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of that house, The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the passover with my disciples He will show you to a large room upstairs all furnished make preparations there they left and found things just as Jesus had told them so they prepared the passover to pray for it as he comes and opens that up to us heavenly father thank you for the book of luke thank you for all you have to teach us through your words Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts, open our minds this morning to your words. Lord, I thank you for Phil and for the time that he's spent preparing this week. Lord, as he opens up your words, I pray that you'd fill him with your Holy Spirit, that you'd be speaking through him, using him, equipping him with everything that he needs now as he speaks. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, James. If you could have
1: your Bible open to that passage, we're going to look at it now. The events that we're looking at uh, this morning actually mark the beginning of Jesus's road to the cross. And Luke writes these verses because he wants us to see that Jesus deliberately came into this world to die for it, and deliberately came to save us from the power and sin of death, uh, power of sin and death. And in wanting to show us Jesus's deliberateness, Luke realizes. We have to see how limitless God's control is. So so God cannot be taken by surprise. That God is planning a gracious plan of salvation. And the scope of his work means that nothing is left to chance. And we need to hear this this morning. Because too often our view of God is too small. For example, too often we find ourselves questioning God rather than trusting God. So when the wheels are falling off the wagon of life, we find ourselves questioning why has God allowed these difficult circumstances to come about? Why hasn't God done God our way and given us a smooth life? we fail to see his hand in our suffering. We fail to see his comfort and his plan at work to grow the gospel in us and through us in our suffering. So my prayer for us this morning is that we would see how big our God is. And in seeing how big our God is, we would be humbled particularly those of us who are not Christians here this morning, I pray that we would not arrogantly believe that by rejecting God, we're somehow winning or we're somehow successfully rebelling. Rebelling. Because for all of us, both Christian and the non-Christian here this morning, Luke wants us to see that Jesus Christ is king. He's trustable. He's omnipotent, which means all-working. He's glorious, he's majestic, and at the same time wonderfully knowable. So I've just got three things um, to, to underline uh, this this morning. I have to also slightly apologise. There are three points, but there are lots of subheadings. So just follow follow me, follow the screen behind me, um, and hopefully you'll get the picture. But the first thing that this this passage wants us to see is that we're to take comfort: God is sovereign over evil. That's the first thing. Take comfort. God is sovereign over evil. So the passage kicks off by saying how the chief priests and teachers of the law conspired to kill Jesus. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. So at the time of these events, uh, Jerusalem was filled with Jews from all over the world. It was a festival where they gathered as a people group to celebrate a Passover festival. And in this Passover mass of people, Jesus was teaching in the temple courts day after day after day, and people were flocking to him, and such was Jesus' authority and his popularity that the religious leaders were getting a little bit uncomfortable about him. They feared what would happen if Jesus was allowed to continue because his popularity was steadily beginning to challenge their authority. So they wanted Jesus out of the way, but they were unable to find a way of doing that. But then we're told their opportunity comes when Judas appears. Look at verse 3 with me. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guards and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. It seemed like Judas was a miraculous answer to the religious leaders' prayers. And we have to therefore look at this from a wider perspective. These opening six verses read like a catalogue of evil, don't they? Evil just joining forces to kill Jesus. Verse 2, the religious leaders. They want Jesus dead. Verse three, Satan, the prince of evil himself, takes his role and enters into Judas. Verse four, Judas, one of Jesus' quick, uh, closest friends, wants a quick prophet. So promises to betray Jesus. Verse five, the religious people who are the most, re- who are meant to be the most religiously switched on people in that nation at that time are prodigiously switched off and they seek and rejoice when they have the opportunity. Um, to, 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 for Jesus to be delivered into their hands. And then verse 6, the cloak of cowardice. Let's do this when nobody looking. Do you see that, that, that list of evil? But before it di- dis- dismays us, we have to look at the brackets of this list. Verse 1, it was nearly time for Passover feast. Verse 7, then came the day of the unleavened, of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So you've got these two verses bracketing this catalogue of evil. And it forces us to see a bigger picture. The bigger picture is the day of the feast. God's Passover lamb would be sacrificed. No ordinary lamb, by the way. This Passover lamb is Jesus Christ. God the Son. By wrapping this catalog of evil in a Passover context, what Luke is doing is helping us see that none of these events are accidental. None of them take Jesus by surprise. And actually the opposite is occurring. God was working his plan of salvation and was even using evil men and the devil himself to accomplish it. Now I know that some of us will struggle to get our, our minds around that. And that's okay because none of us can fully understand it. But there are some things that we need to bear in mind. So firstly, God cannot be blamed for evil, nor held responsible for sin. So can we have the next slide just quickly? There we go. No, can we go back? Can we go back and and back again? There we go. Lovely. Okay. Okay. Okay, let's hold there. Firstly, God can never be blamed for evil, nor held responsible for sin. Because as James 1 verse 13 tells us, God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. In other words, when God uses evil like this to accomplish his plan, it's important to remember that God is not the author of evil or any other evil. So here we go. God didn't prompt Judas to act out of his greed. Satan prompted it. God wasn't greedy. Judas was greedy. It wasn't God who was so jealous of Jesus that Jesus had to be killed. The chief priests and teachers of, teachers of the law were the jealous ones. All those three agents are responsible for their own sin. God is not. They act out of their own hatred for Jesus. But God, in his mighty plan, uses their actions and their desires to serve him. And I know it's confusing. If your small group was anything like ours last week when we were discussing this, we all came to a point of mystery. Our minds were blown away by the fact that God in his sovereignty was working to save the world by sustaining the devil and these evil people and was using their sin for his glorious plan. God was using them, but he's not responsible for their actions against Jesus. Secondly, God's rule and control over evil is a comfort to us. No matter how hard evil tries, no matter how wicked and corrupt and evil society becomes, no matter how frightening and powerful Satan may be, evil cannot overcome God nor taint his goodness with their evil. In other words, God controls and rules over this string of evil choices and evil men and even over Satan himself. And his control is underlined elsewhere in the Bible by the book of Job. In that book, that's an Old Testament book, by the way, we're told of a story of a man called Job who went through unimaginable suffering that was seemingly random. And God carried him through it. And in the story, we're told the devil had to ask God's permission to attack Job. And it's a story that shows us how God's hand is actively and constantly restraining evil. God never lets the power and might of evil men off the leash, no matter how dark the times may be. And that's something we, we have to humbly accept. And, and, and joyfully, that's where the book of Job finishes. I, I love the end of the book of Job, because you get, at the beginning of the book, a, a couple of chapters explaining the story, and then you have 35-odd th- chapters of, of debate uh, about God and, and, and suffering and, and evil in the world. And then in chapter 38 onwards... For 157 verses, honestly it's worth reading uh, uh, this afternoon, 157 verses, God goes on and on and on reminding Job of Job's limitations and of God's absolute all-working omnipotence. And the message to Job is this, take comfort, your God is big enough to trust. And at the very end of it, Job 40, Job says this, Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. He confesses, God, I I just don't know. You are my Lord, and I humbly bow to you. And I know that's a difficult truth to take. Many of us will want to see the reasons behind the difficult times we are enduring. That's what Luke is trying to get us to see in these opening verses of chapter 22. You see, God is so sovereign, it means that we can trust God in the midst of the deepest evils we're facing. Or our hardest trials. Or our scariest moments. When things are unjust and not right God's power is so great he can use even extreme evil to bring about good and nothing can thwart his plans and that might mean that although we suffer pain for a little while it means we have hope and assurance that the pain will somehow work for our good and God's glory and one day God will bring an end to all evil I was struck a few years back by a friend of ours, um, a lady we knew uh, in in my last church. Um, Her son worked for YWAM in, in, um, in Iraq and he was captured by ISIS. Undoubtedly tortured. We were all very worried, and naturally play, praying for him to be released. And then we discovered her prayer. And her prayer went like this Father God, keep him there until all that Christ wants to accomplish through him is complete there is a woman who truly understands the sovereignty of God in evil and suffering. May he remain in captivity till all that Christ wants to accomplish through him is complete. And for those of us who are Christians here this morning, she's a great role model for us to trust God's goodness even when we can't see it because our passage says God is not unaware of evil. The reality is God restrains evil like a dog catcher restrains a rabid stray. That is the truth. And in the mystery of it, we're to preach this to our souls. Your God is bigger than you ever imagined. Your God is bigger than you ever imagined. The second thing that this passage wants us to to understand is that we are to be warned that evil is working in this world. So, as well as bringing comfort, there are also two implied warnings for us in the first six verses of this passage. So, the first warning is this Evaluate your heart, don't be like Judas. If we could have the next slide, please. Great. Evaluate your heart. Don't be like Judas. Judas had been with Jesus uh, for the full three years of his ministry. He'd been at Jesus' side. He'd healed and cast out demons by Jesus' authority. And yet, all the while, his heart belonged to money. John 12, verse 6 tells us that Judas was a thief and a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what he put into it, uh, to what was put into it. So on the one hand, he believed everything he saw about Jesus. He believed Jesus was a great miracle worker. He probably even believed that Jesus was the Messiah from God. But it seemed that Jesus was never Judas's Lord. And we can say that because his actions betrayed his attitude. And the devil takes the opportunity to possess him. And the warning is illustrated by many others who, like Judas, have seemed to be faithful Christians, but have hidden their rebellion well. History is littered with the stories of Christians who have wandered from the truth. There are many examples today of men and women who were once passionate about their faith, but have ended up abandoning Jesus for the idols of their hearts, just like Judas does here. And the warning, therefore, is to honestly evaluate our hearts. We're to take... The Bible's encouragements to run the race, to fight the fight, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling seriously, because our hearts are so deceitful about where we are spiritually. So it's good to ask ourselves honestly, what are the things that we find too precious to give up and to give to Jesus? What are they? Where in our lives do we not trust God? Is there an area in our lives where we're not listening to God's word, but rather we're listening to the lies of the world around us? The warning encourages us to remain vulnerable to the Spirit calling us to Jesus and following Him so that we do not follow Judas in betraying Jesus. So that's one warning about ourselves. The other warning is about the power of the devil. Uh, warning two, the devil is at work. Don't listen to his lies. So the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, to be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, when he lies, about talking about the devil, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We're to be warned. The devil and the demonic are powerfully working in this world and we must have a healthy respect for them in the same way that it's a healthy thing to respect a poisonous snake. In that sense, we're to understand the devil wants to destroy anything God approves of. Whether it's our prayer time, whether it's our Bible reading, whether it's our marriages, whether it's the godly walk of our children, whether it's Christian purity and any church that preaches the gospel. The devil wants them dead. And we have to understand it's by God's grace that we're not crushed by him. And because he's working in this world against Christians and Christ's church, we're to be aware of the lies that he preaches to our souls. Lies about our marriages. Lies about ourselves. Lies about our self-esteem. Lies about our persistent sin. Lies about other people. How do you know when you're listening to the devil? A good indicator is when you've lost trust in God's word and refuse to listen to God's, uh, to, to the wisdom of godly men around you. Another indicator is that we become liars ourselves. We hide the truth about our sin. We don't want to talk about the direction that our lives are heading. We find ourselves making our sin acceptable in our hearts and justifying it to those around us. Lies. The devil is the father of lies. When we become liars ourselves, we're to watch out. That we don't fall for the things that he whispers in our ears. And we can watch out by being careful to pray for God's protection and strength. Just like Jesus encourages his disciples to do in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he's arrested. We do, we, we, we watch out by constantly reminding ourselves of Christ's love, by strengthening our understanding of his word through prayer and fellowship and through confession of sin. That's what we've just expressed this morning. That's why we took the time to confess our sin, because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness around God's table. Let's be vigilant, looking out for the devil's lies and seeking to hear the truth of God's word, no matter how unpalatable it is to us. Listen to God's word. The last thing, and, and it's beautiful, is simply this the third point. Rejoice, God has been planning in eternity. Rejoice, God has been planning in eternity. If Judas and the religious leaders were preparing for death, then Jesus was preparing for life. By that I mean, all, when we look at the rest of the chapter, it's all about how Jesus prepares his disciples for death and resurrection and the new kingdom of heaven uh, that he would give them. So look at verse seven with me. I'm just going to read from seven to 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owners of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Again, Luke's details about the Passover are repeated and they indicate the arrival of a, spe- of a specific event. Look at verse 7. It was the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Verse 8, Jesus told them to prepare for this, for them to celebrate the Passover Verse 11, they were to meet a man and say to him, where is the room in which I can celebrate the Passover with my disciples? Verse 13, they found the things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. And then in verse 15, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It's not subtle. Luke wants us to see how Jesus wanted his disciples to recognize the time for the Passover, had come. Notice also that repeated topic of preparation. Verse 8, make preparations for us to eat. Verse 9, where do you want us to prepare it? Verse 12, make preparations there. Verse 13, so they prepared the Passover. This is a time of preparation. Passover was a Jewish festival That the Jews celebrated to remember God's work 1,500 years before, when God miraculously rescued the Jewish nation from slavery in Egypt and parted the Red Sea so they could be saved from that event, from that situation. And again, when we zoom out uh, to to a much wider view, the repetition of Passover and preparation reminds us that God has been preparing for this Passover since the days of Moses, for 1500 years. Why? Because the whole Passover event points to Jesus and explains his work on the cross. And it's a reminder of God's mighty plan being put into place. God had been preparing this night for 1500 years. He's sovereign through all the years and generations because he's, he's God and his plan will not fail. He is the great master planner. He plans our lives and the lives of masses on this planet. So we're part of something much bigger, something much more wonderful. We're part of God's great story, a true story, a story with a plot that stretches from the first creation to the new creation, running through from the fall to the day when Jesus returns and all things will be made new. And God's great plan may have plots and twists and reveals and surprises at every turn. But in this great drama, Jesus is the center. And the events of this Passover are at the very heart of his story, history. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was to be sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. And God had been preparing for it. This is no accident. This is the climax of history. How do we respond to this great plan? Well, the... The command, the imperative, as you look back, as we're humbled by this great picture, this great plan, this amazing God who even constrains evil, the imperative is simply to bow our knees in worship and rejoicing that God is the great planner. Because He has a plan, we can firstly understand that in God's plan we have value. Do you see that? if we are simply just random accidents of chance, there is no inherent value in you. If you are part of the great gospel plan of the joyful God who created and spoke into being and who will one day return with joy and great salvation, then you have inherent value. Because he has sent his son into this world as a great demonstration of his love and he has died to take away our sin. There is your value. If the great creator has said you are valuable enough for me to die for you, then we have joyful value, have we not? How can we not rejoice because of him and his plan? And we have purpose, don't we? We have purpose. We're not here by accident. I love that tiny little detail. Jesus says, go go into town and you'll see this bloke with a water jar on his head. Follow him. And they do it. And it all, it's, it's absolutely to the minutest detail. Even a bloke carrying a water jar on his head has a purpose and a meaning and a plan. He sets up the Passover meal. Isn't that joyful? Down to the tiniest detail. Value and purpose and meaning. That jar on his head was not there by accident. Do you really believe that we are here by accident this morning? I hope not. That God has given you the motivation to work through the storm and the rain and that that horrible feeling of meh that it places on your heart. To be here, to listen to his word, to see this great plan in God, to hear of his almighty plan and power over evil. This is your God. He has brought us here this morning to hear of his might and, and, and powerful sovereignty and to rejoice in him. That is his purpose this morning. And his great plan invites us to know purpose in him. And his great plan gives us identity. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? I am a child of God's plan. I am in his love. I have been saved and purchased and redeemed by his grace, by his plan that brought his son to the cross to die in my place. I am a child of the great almighty God. And first and foremost, if you're a Christian here this morning, there is your place in the plan of God. He gives us purpose. He shows us our value to him. He teaches us who we really are in Christ. And that's why we rejoice. This great plan of God grounds us in his mighty arms. There's naught that can take away that from us. I realize that there might be some of us this morning who aren't Christians. Who are struggling to fit the jigsaw pieces of God and Jesus and his plan together. Or can I encourage you to consider your value before God. That he has sent Jesus Christ into this world. To take away your sins and my sins. Can I encourage you to ask him to be the God of your life to be the one who shapes your value, who shapes your purpose, who shapes your identity through Jesus' death on the cross, and the one who invites us to be a healthy part of his plan in this world. That's his invitation this morning. Perhaps you've not done that before. Perhaps you once said something to God, to that agree, but you never you, you realize you never really meant it. Wherever you're at, the Bible tells us this morning that having seen the great sovereign planning God for who He is, today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of reckoning, and it's time to talk to him in all his glory and majesty and love and care and wisdom for us about a relationship with him. And for all of us this morning, let's remember how Luke subtly reminds us of this great plan of God in the midst of evil and plotting. So no matter how dark the times might be, Jesus is Lord. Even when he's betrayed by one of his best friends, even when he's hung on a cross, by those who believe they worshipped his father. We can be humbled by that and follow Luke's invitation to take comfort in it and to rejoice. The Lord is king. King over evil. His hand is working his plan of salvation, even today and tomorrow. Till Jesus returns, let's rejoice, take comfort, and be warned by all that God's word has shared with us this morning.